Hey, Green Future Growers. Welcome to Season 4. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. I'm here to help you create, grow, and enjoy your own organic oasis. I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Friday, March 4th, 2022. And I have an awesome guest on the line. I was talking to some another guest and she was recommended and I wrote to her and she came right on from Design Wild New York, Shanti Nagel from New York, New York. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. So why don't you go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about yourself and what is Design Wild? Um, sure, okay. So um, I am obsessed with plants, as I'm sure most of your guests are, but we love to, we design gardens, Design Wild, in New York City and now throughout the Hudson Valley also. Um, I'm from upstate New York and I've been in the city for almost two decades. Um, we love the magic of plants and um, we, we like to think about the magic of plants bringing people peace and equity and really a place that I always start nowadays and maybe forever is climate change. And I'm not sure what to do about climate change. It's a big um, conversation. When people ask me how I am, I usually say I'm great and I'm also in a constant state of despair. And I think both are okay at all times. But the only solution that I really have is the more we connect to nature, the more we connect to ourselves and the more grounded we are on this earth, the more I feel prepared for whatever's coming. And so we try to use gardens to help people ground themselves and really be prepared for the world that's um, coming. So what's it like to design spaces in New York? Like, are you working on rooftops or in gardens or in people's homes on their balconies? Yeah, like, what's so, we, so we do do residential work, but actually the primary uh, work that we do nowadays is around um, public space. We love the more public, the better, the more access people have to it, the better, the more people that can enjoy these plants. Um, we love, I'll just say, I love these studies that have come out about the mental health effects of plants. And um, we, what we see that's so great is that it's not necessarily the big parks in cities that really affect people's mental health. The parks are important and we know that they're the lungs of our city and we're so grateful for our big parks. But it's the horticulture, the plants, the trees that people see every day when they walk to the bus, when they go to school, when they're hustling about their day. It's those moments of nature that really affect their mental health and their happiness. Um, and we see that those little plants and, and moments of wild nature um, affect you know, the levels of ADHD, the levels of 911 calls, uh, the levels of just basic health um, blood pressure, all that kind of stuff. Um, so we love the more public and the more accessible to people, the better. We also do a lot of work around affordable housing. So we love creating gardens for New Yorkers who maybe are not the 1% or the 1.1%. We do, however, also do residential. So we are doing some terraces and rooftops um, and we design those and we love um, adding our pollinators into those. So most of our gardens have a a lot of natives and definitely not 100%, but let's say 80% usually is natives. Um, and so we love talking with our pollinators, our bees, our butterflies and our birds. Some of our public plantings are really right in the middle of Midtown. So we love the juxtaposition of wild native plantings with traffic and foot traffic and uh, buses and all the things that make New York beautiful. Um, so we 
created gardens that bring monarchs into the mouth of the Lincoln Tunnel. And we really see those two things together and it's, and it's amazing. And those little ecological pockets of gardens, we've also seen in studies um, that they really make a difference for our pollinators and our, and our songbirds. That's awesome. I think I've seen those pollinators at the, in the mouth of the Lincoln Tunnel. <laughs> really? <laughs> cool. Um, we're really proud that um, not only have we got seen the monarch butterflies, which if you know a little about their life cycle, you know, they'll, they'll, uh, the butterflies will um, visit many different flowers, but the caterpillars, as many people know, will only eat Asclepius, our butterfly weed or, or milkweed. And so we have seen the butterflies in our ecological plantings, but we've also seen the caterpillars. And um, that seems like a real success that they're actually having their full life cycle um, right there in the middle of Midtown. So how do you find these projects or like, how do you, how do you get to do this? Like, do you work with the city or like people or like businesses or like so yeah how, how does that great work? question I think what what I found is that my favorite kind of client are actually institutions like I love working with people who love their jobs um, and so residential work right you're working with a resident someone who owns a home and and that's also fun but what we do a lot of is work with organizations so whether it's a nonprofit um, that's building affordable housing the public space that I just described is with a business improvement district. So those are nonprofits that um, are formed throughout New York City. There's actually 52 of them um, that, you know, take care of the, the streetscapes, take care of the neighborhoods. It's a way of, of partnering public and private money to take care of neighborhoods. I just think this is so important. And I love the way you talked about, like, when people like, you know, leave their building and they're, they're going to work or they're going to school and they're like walking by the tree on the sidewalk or they see this plant, like how that can make a difference in how they feel or their ADHD and just, yes. um, we watched that show mom with like, uh, the, uh, what's her name? Allison Janney. And they play like the drug addicts and like, at, we're like the episodes lately have been about like Allison Janney finds out she has ADHD and so she's like oh I can blame everything that's gone wrong on my life <laughs> on my ADHD and she does like at one point the psychiatrist does tell her he's like you know it was probably an amazing coping mechanism and you maybe would be dead if you didn't have that mm. didn't say she really did grow up in this like horrific I mean you know it's a, it's a drama tv show to like but you know I think the point of this show is to bring awareness to you know people coming from the struggles of of people in the world anyway I think that you know I've never been diagnosed although I, I usually refer to myself as neurologically diverse so I have um, some dyslexia I don't know if I have any ADHD or attention stuff but what I do know is that I very rarely can sit indoors for more than a few hours at a time. And I think it's amazing that we ask children to do that all the time, right? To sit still and sit inside for all those hours. Oh and, and teachers to force them to do it as an elementary educator. Are you? Oh, you are, you are. Yeah, so I just think like, I mean, even sitting at my desk, this time of year is very busy, right? I'm primarily a designer now. And so I'm just ordering a ton of plants and doing lots of spreadsheets and like planning and planning and planning for the spring that's coming any day now. And um, I have to get up every two hours at least, right? And walk outside and just run around or look at the sun or breathe some air. And we know that from, again, these studies, I think the University of Chicago did some really groundbreaking early ones, that if there are trees that you can see from your window, that the test scores of children living in those apartments are different than, than the test scores of children who live in apartments where they can't see any trees. 
Um, and so also like in hospitals, like they have people that they like monitored their recuperation. If they looked out a window at a tree or if they looked yes. out a window at like a apartment building, the people who looked out at the tree recovered better and faster. Right, right. And so if we are aware of that, and of course COVID exacerbated all of this because who had access to green space and who didn't becomes very evident in terms of socioeconomic right. levels. And I think um, in, in terms of equity, it becomes so crucial and important. We see um, even the historic red lines in New York, you can see based on the street trees. So that uh, neighborhoods that were historically underinvested in black and brown neighborhoods have less street trees than more funded neighborhoods. And so that is a dramatic disparity that we're, we're always excited to, to change and work on. I, I, there's so many things I could say there. But um, Shanti, I always start out the show asking about your very first gardening experience. Mm -hmm. Like, were you a kid? Were you an adult? Who were you with? What do you remember growing? Sure. I um, grew up on 10 acres in upstate New York. My folks are very um, back to the land hippies. They bought 10 acres in their late 20s, I guess, with a whole bunch of kids. And they proceeded to create vegetable gardens and beautiful uh, flower gardens. So they are incredible gardeners, both of them. My mom is definitely more um, the ornamental gardener and she's very, very good at successions of greens. So she does all the lettuces and the, and the greens all season. My dad focuses more on the, the main crops, like the you know nightshades and the cucurbits and things like that. But they have their division of labor and they've been gardening in that same property for about 40 years now, I'm dating myself. Um, and so that was my childhood. So it was ingrained in everything that I did. Um, when I wasn't helping in the garden, I was running around in the woods. Um, but the story that I often tell is that we were, um, me and my two siblings were required to do some weeding every weekend. And um, maybe an hour, let's say, <laughs> we were supposed to do. And I would march out there to the garden. I'd do my hour of weeding and then I would never leave. I would just spend the rest of the day out there with my, with my folks doing whatever we were doing because where else would you want to be, right? And my siblings would peace out real quick. When I tell this story, often my mom will correct me and say, I don't think they ever showed up even. So um, the three of us, my parents and myself were in the garden many weekends. Hey, maybe you can introduce me to your mom and she could do an interview with me about succession greens because that's something I always struggle with. Oh my God, yeah, sure. Um, she is really good at it. I went, um, after a childhood growing up on those 10 acres, I decided, actually, I spent a year um, like homesteading. This is going into your podcast, huh? This is old, old history. But I, I spent a year homesteading in the Midwest and decided I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. Um, and so I came back to the Northeast to learn how to farm. I, I realized I needed more production uh, knowledge. And so I came back to, to farm and, and got a lot of education around agriculture here in Columbia County, New York. But one of the things that we learned was succession planting of lettuce, which is really just, you gotta keep doing it. <laughs> I know that that makes it simple. On a farm though, we would plant lettuce every week on the same day of the week to keep the successions going. So that was like Tuesday was lettuce seeding day and you planted it every week all through the spring. And then when you had too much lettuce, like maybe late May, and you have lettuce coming out of your ears and you just think you have more lettuce than you'll ever need, that's when we double how much we plant. And that's because um, for our, oh. yeah, it's 
counterintuitive, right? But that's because as uh, many of our experienced gardeners will know, but it does make yeah, when it gets hot and the summer arrives, it's hard to grow lettuce. Lettuce doesn't really like that weather, right? Especially the germination of lettuce. And so when you have more lettuce than you can imagine at the end of spring is when we double down and make more so that we have the same amount basically in summer. Golden seed. <laughs> that's my, that's my, my lettuce succession story. So what is something that grew well this year? Oh my goodness. So I, I mean, so I have my own garden for the first time really in my adult life. So I've been creating gardens for community, for public space and for residents for probably 20 years. Um, but I bought a home in the Hudson Valley about five years ago. And it, and it didn't really dawn on me until I moved in and, and started living here that this is really the first time I've had a garden as an adult. I had a commercial farm once in my 20s, but I've never just had a garden or a vegetable garden or a flower garden. Um, and that's because I've lived in New York City most of my life. Um, so that's exciting and that's new for me. <laughs> and COVID allowed me a, a little more time to focus on it also, just because the rest of the world quieted down. So what grew well last year? Did it, or is this summer going to be the first season? No, no, it's in process. It's been in process in all different kinds of ways. What grew well last year? Um, I think I had awesome asters. We, I love my asters. I think I need to move them around a bit more. Um, but the deer, and I don't, don't swear by this, but the deer seem to eat my asters in the early season. Um, and what it turns out, and then they must wander off and find something better to eat because basically they seem to just pinch them back they prune them, they bush out again, and so they're, you know, like shorter, but, but bushier, and then they flower great a couple months later. Nice. So what's something you're excited to try different this year coming up? Um, one of the things I'm really excited about this coming spring or is that I planted some fall greens that really didn't um, grow into greens, and I, I knew what I was doing mostly. I'm a bit of an intuitive gardener, but mostly I know what I'm doing. Um, so I had some Asian greens and um, and some spinach out there, I think. And it's been covered all winter. And so the idea is that they barely, you know, they're just above the ground really before uh, winter came. But basically, as soon as the snow melts, maybe maybe tomorrow, and the sun from February, you know, gets we get a little more sunlight, they'll start growing right away. So I'm hoping to have greens to eat in the next couple of weeks. And that'll be new for my little garden. Um, of course, I could up it a little bit more with some better cover, but right now they just have row cover over them all winter, and um, I think they're still there and they're ready to go. That's the best kind of greens. That's usually the only way we get spinach to at my house is if it comes from the fall through the winter, because otherwise, like if you plant it in the spring, I know. Same. When it's ready to harvest, it just bolts. I know. I'm not the best at spinach. But good for you for getting it in in the fall so it's ready for the spring. I'm totally jealous there. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, how about something that didn't go the way you thought it was going to? Um, you know, I actually have been struggling with some of my um, like shrub plantings and I did test, I did some more soil testing this year. So it's not that they're dying. It's just that they're not moved, like really growing and they've been in for a while. And so I dug deep, no pun intended, right? I dug in a little deeper into what's going on. And I think it's probably just the pH thing that I never really addressed. Um, so I did spread lime this year. Um, I'm hoping to see them just, you know, just 
just grow, flourish a little bit more. They're just sort of stagnant. Um, and I did a lot of plantings on the property for privacy and, you know, to, to focus some of my views, my, some of my design choices, and they haven't grown in fully. So I'm hoping that they, um, they take a bit more of a jump this year. Cool. I like that. And soil for sure has been the theme of my show. Well, you know, when I talk to a new client, it's usually the first thing, of course, I say, have you tested your soil? Let's, let's test it. I love sending soil samples into our land grant universities still. I don't know if that's how you do it, but that's how I still do it. There's something, I don't know, there's something warm and fuzzy to sending them in. And I use Cornell sometimes. I also use Rutgers a lot um, in New Jersey. And I send out our soil samples, right? And you can talk to the lab about the results and you get all their information. And I just find it really nerdy and fun. Um, and so I usually recommend people do that right off the bat. It's a $20 test, right? If you've never done it, you just mail it into the land grant universities and you get all the information. So I tell other people to do that all the time. Of course, I didn't do it for myself. So I had to catch up a few years later and say, do they give you your organic matter? Do they tell um, you that? They will. There's a $20 test that does pH and sort of your, your macronutrients, right? There's a little, you can ask for a little bit more. Um, if you pay a little bit more, you can get more. If you pay a lot more, you can get your metal report, which we do sometimes if we're worried about our lead levels, right? But the organic matter, I think, comes in that basic test. I do think it is. Because I've been told like that's the most important number. Oh. I ended up paying $50 for a soil test. So I'll have to look into that land grant university. Where do you send? Rutgers. Well, where do you send your tests in? Well, where did I end up sending it? Um, I think that all, the, I mean, I, what do I know? I thought that all the land grant universities do that and you must have some out your way too. Such an interesting oh, yeah. historic program, the land grant universities. I uh, I was gonna do an interview with the guy from the school in Bozeman. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, but they all they do in Montana is they analyze the test. They don't. They analyze your results. They don't do the actual. You can't send them the soil. Oh, okay. I sent mine to Peaceful Valley in California. Interesting. Here's, wait, that, I was just looking it up. The land-grant universities is, a, is something that Abe Lincoln did. Holy moly. Um, yeah, but isn't it, doesn't that mean like your, your state universities are- Well, so Oregon, I'm looking at your part. Montana State, yes. Little Horn, what is blue and there's two different colors here. Oh, I see they're later. Yeah, surprisingly, you don't have as many University of Idaho, Washington State University. I bet Washington State University does a, a real program. Utah State University, University of Wyoming. Those are the ones around you. Mine are UMass, of course, Cornell, and Rutgers. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, so I ended up sending it to Peaceful Valley in California, and oh. um, we got back a great report with good results, but it cost me $50 by the time I like paid for the test and everything and then paid to ship the soil. Right. Which was like $12. I see. I see. I don't know if I added shipping into the, my cost, but, um, but it shouldn't cost, they shouldn't cost too much. Well, it was funny because like this company, um, I interviewed this woman and she sent me a free soil kit and I thought it was the greatest thing on earth because it came with like the prepaid mailer uh -huh. like she sent me the bit she even sent me a shovel uh -huh. 
because she didn't want like you know she wanted one that wasn't like galvanized steel or whatever or something like no rest like you know it was like a brand new shovel that was going to get the dirt good and so I sent it to her and then I was like but I need to know the organic matter so then she sent me another one and I sent that back and it still didn't come with the organic matter and I guess their lab doesn't analyze that and a lot of the gardeners I've talked to but anyway um that's just us but uh yeah land grant universities and and these things because yeah it is super important you like um when i talked to anastasia cole pokeas from the brooklyn green she, she was telling us that one of the biggest things they realized i want to say it was their arugula or something was like the leaves are really pale and yellow and they couldn't figure it out and they had this kid there who was really into like um, uh -huh. you know data and and numbers and and everything and he was like well you need to do the soil test and they found out that they were like missing like boron or something. And uh, it was just, just a huge game changer yeah. for them. And so yeah, I think it's a great practice and, and homeowners, especially I try to get them in, you know, like just used to that practice often because you can have the little home test pH stuff, but something about those are not nearly as satisfying to me. Um, so I like to send it in and send it in often, you know, like not every year, but maybe every other year, just check your soils and check your pH. And we know that we're, um, you know, the pH is the most important, um, you're just, you're useless without it, right, without your right pH, so I think it's a fun thing to test and just get used to, and, and for the land-based, I mean, Rutgers is the one I've used most recently, you just print, I don't get the prepaid package or whatever, I just get, I just print something out from the computer, fill out their little form, put it in a Ziploc bag, and, and send it off to them. Oh, good to know. Um, yeah, because especially like I've been struggling for like four years to get my blueberries to grow. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest problem with them mm -hmm. is because my pH is like an eight point something in the bed the blueberries are in. And I guess they need like a 4.5. So I've been trying to figure out how to lower that or maybe I'm just going to have to move them. But I don't know. Anyway, yes. uh, I think this is a part of the show that we call getting to the root of things. So do you have a least favorite activity to do in the garden? Oh, that one is always, that's tough. I mean, depending on the day, how about that? Like some days I really don't want to do certain things like turn compost maybe. Um, but you know, if you wait, I think what I've learned about gardening, it teaches us so much about life, right? What I've learned about gardening is if I don't force myself to do that activity and I wait for a day when I'm feeling it, that day does come around. And then I say, you know, today's a good day to do this. And, and then I feel excited about it. So I've tried to force myself less to do the things I don't like. Um, but the truth is I'd rather do any of the garden tasks than wash the dishes. <laughs> That's awesome. I feel that way with running. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love to run, but some days I'm just not feeling it. And if I just skip that day and, and wait the next day, I find that I'm yeah. likely to go further. I think th the same lesson I've been really trying to do on a seasonal um, cycle too. So in, in January, especially this year, but I think more and more in January, like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't really want to do anything. Like I don't want to work. I want to be cozy and, and comfortable, right. And read and study and those kind of things. And, and I think I still have in my head, a lot of shoulds, like I should be doing this or I should be preparing for the growing season. Right. And I'm really trying to let go of those. Cause what I've noticed is that is for me, it's like as soon as the sap starts running, right? Like here in the Northeast, people are making maple syrup. Um, 
And that happens like right in the middle, usually in the middle of February. And as soon as the app starts running, all of a sudden I have the attention for all the prep and I'm ready to work and I want to go at it, you know? Um, so I'm trying to drop all those shoulds and know that January is a time to be cozy and study and, and you know, and rest. Um, and that when the sap starts running and the season starts coming, we're ready to go. Yeah, it's so true. Um, I feel like we have a lot in common. And, uh, <laughs> well, I, love and it. I think it's important to trust your intuition. And sometimes like it can backfire on you because if you go out there and force yourself to do something, right. <laughs> you know, you can either get a frost or it'll be too early, you get your tractor stuck in the mud or like in running, you can end up injuring yourself or, you know, I, I think, it, I think yeah. you could do it. I keep trying to clean it. up I this. That's important. I keep trying to clean up this area where things are just frozen hard to the ground, right? And I go out every couple of days or every week or so and say, I'm going to clean that up now. And then I'm like, no, you're not. It's frozen hard. You're not going to clean it up. You're going to be patient and you're going to wait for that to freeze or unfreeze. Yep, absolutely. So on the flip side, what's your favorite activity to do in the garden? Oh my God, so many. But um, I think that where my heart always goes is planting bulbs. I love the act of planting bulbs. And I think that it's a spiritual practice. And I think in these years where it's been really tough, like COVID and even before COVID, just, just tough years we've gone through as a country and, and a world. Um, I think that the bulbs are such a beautiful symbol of, of, of faith, really. Um, and so we put those bulbs, it's really the last activity we do before the snows come, right? And we put those bulbs in with this promise that we believe spring will come again. You know, just the faith that that this cold, hard winter is coming, but that spring will come and we put that blessing right into the earth right at the end. We close it over with dirt, right? And we say, we'll wait for spring. And those, you know, often daffodils, you know, they're so cheerful, will come again. You're so eloquent. And like, <laughs> I want to say, are you not a rock star millennial born between 1980 and 1995? You just have the passion of someone. Oh, yeah, I'm a little years. older, but but yeah, I'm on, I'm on the old cusp. Um, the other the other random task that I really like, which is is I, I like making little irrigation systems and I don't really do it professionally because in New York City it comes oh with like. Oh my gosh, I'm surprised people aren't like. No, no, I, well, don't tell anyone. No, I, I don't, I don't advertise it professionally, <laughs> but just as a homebody for friends or for myself, like I actually really like it. And uh, for all the homeowners out there, home gardeners out there, like they're easy to make and they're life changing. Put your, you know, container gardens or your deck garden or any of that stuff, put it on a timed irrigation system. You can get it at your local hardware store or you can mail order it from a, a bigger supplier. And it's totally game changing, especially of course in August when often we go away for weeks or, or for weekends. And you know, my container garden, people come over all the time and say like, why is your container garden so beautiful? And I'd like to take credit for it, but really it's just because it's on an irrigation system. When are you gonna come out with a book? Oh, I know. So I can see how you do this. Cause like, that is something oh. that my listeners are like, that's what Jackie needs desperately. Cause like one of my least favorite is watering. Oh, I, you know what I say? I'm such a, sorry, bleep. Um, I say watering is for suckers. <laughs> Cause the less I can water in my garden, the better. Yeah. So get yourself a timer. And I have a couple different, actually. But how does the timer hook up to the hose? 
Like you put it on the spigot? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm going to send you some resources. Um, but yeah, there's actually different levels of intensity, right? So there's a, I mean, for like 50 bucks, you can get a time, an irrigation timer um, that has multiple zones. I mean, that will, you know, turn on basically mine just, it's simple, right? Mine turns on at six o'clock in the morning for 15 minutes or whatever it is every day, unless, you know, unless it's earlier or later in the season, maybe I'll make it a couple times a week instead. Um, but you can also get really simple ones that are just like an egg timer. And I tell people often, if they think they want to water their garden, <laughs> get one of those, because at least then you can leave the hose running. And it's an egg timer, so it just like clicks down. And then when it's, you know, your 15 minutes are over, it turns the hose off. And so at least then you're not doing this constant game with yourself, right? Where you're like, oh God, I forgot the hose or I forgot the sprinkler or whatever. Um, you can turn it on, go do something else and the timer will turn it off for you. Mm, crazy. Uh, what's the best gardening advice you've ever received? Oh, I have so many garden mentors, wonderful garden mentors. Oh my goodness, there's so much wisdom out there. Um, I think one of my garden mentors, um, often she says that um, she'll move a plant three times before it finds its permanent home in her garden. And I think that's an amazing um, freedom. I think often, especially when we're not particularly experienced gardeners, but I think also experienced gardeners, we put it a plant in one place and we think it's supposed to be the perfect place. And if it fails, it's our fault. When actually you're just gaining information from the plant, right? So you put it where you think that it should go and maybe it's not that happy there um, or it doesn't quite work with your design or whatever it is. Usually it's about the plant's happiness. It's not thriving, just move it. Um, and she does that with, you know, uh, with shrubs and, and perennials and all sorts of things. And, and then when you hit the right place and the plant is happy, you can tell, you know, and it's like, oh, it's like a sigh of relief. Like, oh, it likes where it is. So don't get stuck just leaving things, you know, pick them up, move them around. And of course, spring and fall are great times to move, move stuff. That's awesome. I like, it's funny, the one, so I ordered three blueberry plants last year from that peaceful valley in California and uh, two of them I planted and one of them, like I just never can find the place that I wanted to put it. And it's still sitting in its container. <laughs> sure. Um, but it was the one that thrived the best. It was the the health, none of them actually gave me blueberries, but you know, it didn't, the other ones look like they're all going to die. Like they have like, yeah, you know, I, I mean, you're in the country, right? I often will grow blueberries in containers, like all through New York city. I love blueberry bushes, high bush blueberries for, for just ornamental gardens. And I plant them in, as container plants, um, you know, as the sort of centerpiece of an ornamental container. And then there are blueberries also, which of course are fun. Um, and often people will, you know, think that there's an ornamental garden. And then when blueberry season comes, they're like, wait a second, is that a blueberry? You know, like they're surprised by it. And I'm like, yeah, but they do make beautiful container uh, plants. So maybe that last one that hasn't found a place could find a pot to live in. Maybe that's what I should do with all of them, like dig all three up. and. Well, then you can amend the soil how you please too, right? It's much easier yeah. mm -hmm, to make them a little acidic spot. Um, how about a favorite tool? If you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? Oh, well, I mean, 
I'm not going to go with Falcos because I think that's our all of our go-tos. Like we love and swear by our Falcos as horticulturalists. But the other one that I love, it, like just my spade. Like I don't even really want people to touch my spade. <laughs> I like a very nice, very sharp spade. Um, and also a floral shovel, um, if that counts as the same, which I don't know if everyone uses. That's what I call it. And it looks like a regular shovel, but it's only 10 inches wide or, or less, six inches wide. Um, so it's a very little sharp shovel. And um, I think that's great, again, for all that moving of perennials that I spoke about, that's the perfect tool for it. You can get into little beds and in, in between things. Um, I think the blade is about six inches wide. Do you use like a hori hori knife or anything like that? I really don't. Um, again, I, I don't make my living maintaining gardens anymore. I think if I did, I would probably use more of that. How about a favorite recipe you like to cook or eat from the garden? Um, I can't wait till we have fresh vegetables again. Oh my goodness. Um, but I think uh, that my go-to is broccoli rob. And if I, it's not the healthiest thing, but I just die for broccoli rob in my in a grilled cheese. Yum. <laughs> uh, with cheddar cheese, what kind of cheese? Oh, I mix it up, whatever's in the drawer. But yeah, cheddar or a little Gruyere would be nice. Actually, the two together is even better. Mm. How about a favorite internet resource? Where do you find yourself surfing on the web? Oh, so many things. I love um, lots of my peers' websites, lots of the people I know and love and the work that they're doing. Um, I definitely use the Missouri Botanical Garden as a reference. And I like to tell a lot of new people about that just because you know, they think that us experienced plant people have it all in our heads, but the truth is we reference things all the time, right? And so, um, sure, we have our book references also, but honestly, most of the time when I'm just like, what's the hardiness zone of this plant? Or like, you know, something basic, what's the shade tolerance? I'll go to the Missouri Botanical Garden. And I also go to some of our nursery sites. Um, so I use a lot of wholesale nurseries that I love, local businesses around the Northeast. Um, Pleasant Run is an amazing locally owned nursery and their website is an incredible resource. Um, and I'll just go through plants and, and think of all the great plants they're growing and what I want to use. Cool, thanks for sharing all of those. How about a favorite book? Um, oh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say the book that's right next to me. How about that? I mean, I think Braiding Sweetgrass is a book that changed my life. And I think we a lot of people have talked about that a lot, but the book that I have next to me is not quite as sexy as that. It's the it's a, called the Book of Lists, and it was made for New York and Mid Atlantic gardeners. And I think I think they need to publish a new one. I hope that they're working on a new one because this one is uh, 2001. Yeah, it needs updating. Um, but it's incredible. It literally is a book of lists, and so I use it all the time when I'm designing. So it's uh, like, for instance, um, vines with variegated foliage or shrubs that tolerate shade, or shrubs that tolerate alkaline soil, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they just have a list. It has the hardiness zone and the botanical name. And I find that so useful when I'm designing gardens. Crazy, I never heard of that. Uh... Some of our friends are, some of our friends are in there. Basically different people in the trade um, prepared these different lists, which is really cool. So you can read about who the person is who made the list also. And uh, some of them are people we know. How about 
some business advice like if somebody wanted to start a like design business or something do you have any advice for them I mean, my business runs on word of mouth. And so, and I also come from a long line of community organizers or rebel rousers, as we, we say, my great grandparents were social action people. Um, and so I would just say relationships, like so much of business is about relationships. Um, and so show up with that in mind. Um, and, you know, I think my business is also based on equity. And so, yes, equity is in how we talk about our work and, and where we do our work, but it's also in just the interactions we have with everyone. And I mean, your bookkeeper, you know, the guy that sells you compost, all the people in our lives, the people who work for, for us, of course, um, our collaborators. It's how you interact with all those people, I think, is, is a big piece of the equity. Um, and a big piece that's forgotten often. So how do we show up in every room that we're in and every room we're doing work in? Was that business? Shanti, thank you so much. Was that business so advice? Much. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, okay, my final question is kind of a doozy. Uh, if there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about, a project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Well, I mean, I think climate change is the biggest issue of our time. I think it's an incredible one also because it's in entirely uniting, right? Like nobody is going to get out of this one. Um, across the globe. And so we're entirely in it together. I think any kind of equity work that you're doing is climate work now, whether it's working around affordable housing or LGBTQ rights or anything. Um, and so keep doing all of that great work. I like to support things that are really close to home. So find the people who are doing really true deep work wherever you are and support them. Um, I do, um, the more that, uh, Time goes by, I am focusing more and more on native gardens. It was never my first inspiration, but, um, and I think that in the suburbs, we could do a lot of work on that. Like people still believe in really straight green lawns. Um, and I'm always surprised by that, but I think that we are making a lot of progress in terms of aesthetic and acceptability. Um, we need to make these beautiful wild landscapes more acceptable in all kinds of settings um, to make humans and people live longer on this earth. Yeah, I think that's it. I don't know. From designwildny.com, Shanti Miguel. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. And listeners, if they want to get a hold of you or connect with you, where should they go? Um, they should definitely follow us on Instagram. That's where we're most active. Um, we do have a subscription program where if you just want to be in our mix and, and get a little inspired about climate okay. and earth and connection, you can go to our website. All of it's found at designwildny.com um, or designwildny on Instagram. Follow us, come join us, come play with us. We love all of the earth plant people out there. Well, thank you so much for being so eloquent and sharing your passion and your energy and everything you've got going and keep up the great work and uh, have a great day. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to meet you virtually. Aww, you too. And maybe we'll get to meet in person someday. Hey, everybody. Don't forget to help me support The Gentle Barn by signing up to donate at organicgardenerpodcast.com slash gentle. That's organicgardenerpodcast.com backslash gentle.
Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening, and remember, grow local.